Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Annalise Reinhold. Annalise is the General Counsel and Senior Vice President of Legal at Do, and Do is Dubai's premier telecoms company. Now, I love all of my guests at all of my episodes, but I particularly love my discussion with Annalise. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Firstly, we share some common history, and we talk a bit about that on the show. And the second thing is Annalise shares with us a very personal story and you know, taking us back to her teenage years and a so a very, which was a very difficult period for her. And she talks about how that really shaped her, how that built determination as, and resilience, and really how that developed her into the person that she is. And it really set her up for a fantastic international career. And she talks of all about that. So it's a wonderful story. As I said, I just love speaking to Annalise. So in the usual fashion, sit back, chillax, and enjoy the episode. Annalise Reinhold, it's fantastic to see you again. Welcome to the show. I'm so excited that we're going to get a chance to speak. Jim, thanks very much for inviting me. It's an absolute uh, pleasure to be here speaking to you again. It's uh, fantastic. It's been a little while since we've caught up, Annalise. We've kind of got some common history and we'll talk a little bit about that. But just uh, I'm going to do a little bit of a high-level intro and then I'm going to ask you to do a bit of a deeper dive into your career and your journey but for the audience out there of course for the last since 2005 you've been the general counsel and senior vice president and legal at Do Dubai's premier telecoms company in fact you've been in the Middle East I think for since 2003 so we're going to do a bit of a deeper dive there but before you got there Tell us a little bit about the Annalise Reinhold story, the journey, the influencing factors. What got you to the point, I suppose, just before you got to a decision of, I'm going to move to the Middle East? I'd love to hear a bit about that. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Jim. And actually, it's it's an interesting question. What I really wanted to focus on, I suppose, was more the journey Maybe the the journey almost before I became a lawyer, if you like. Oh, let's go for it. Yeah, absolutely. The reason for that is it's not something that I you know, tend to speak about very much, but people seem to be quite interested when I do mention certain aspects to them. But the main reason for talking about it is I think a lot of the formative experiences that I have actually shaped the way I have subsequently approached my career and particularly you know, the way that my career has panned out in the Middle East. So, I mean, as you mentioned, we do, we do have some common areas of history. We actually, Jim and I actually were unbeknownst to ourselves at law school together. In, uh, in, a, in How about that? A shout out to University of Melbourne in the late, let's call it, let's just call it the late 80s, all right? <laughs> so, we were lucky enough to be there in that 15 window of year of, uh, 15 year window of opportunity where tuition fees were not charged actually at Australian universities. How about that? That's right. A free education. Free education. A free education at was one of the top 10 law schools in the world, Jim. So, I mean, I think we were very, very fortunate. Very lucky. Very fortunate. I'm very, very grateful for that period. Yeah, you're right. No, so am I. And and honestly, in my case, if it, if it hadn't been free tuition, I, don't, I would not have been able to go to university. No, no. 
I had, and the bit of my personal journey I, I thought you know people might be interesting for people is is just the fact that you know I had a pretty uneventful childhood and everything. But the defining sort of event came when I was about thirteen and my brother was eleven, when our mother actually fell ill with bowel cancer, and sadly after a sort of two year struggle, she passed away when I was fifteen and he was thirteen. And I think you know that was really a defining event in my life, the start of a very difficult period actually that went on for at least I think the next 10 years. We, you know, later as an adult, I sort of read a lot about, you know, psychologists talking about the top 10 life stressor events and everything else. And I realized that at that period, you know, we had probably about five of those things going on simultaneously in our life because mum passed away like the next day we had to pack up the house and move from Sydney where we were living, which is a city in Australia, to another City, Melbourne, start all over again, new school, new house, new friends, and all those sort of things. So all in an environment back in those days, as you know, Jim, where you didn't have, you know, bereavement counselling or family counselling or any of those things. It was all unheard of. You just had to work it all out for yourself. So that was pretty tough for, you know, our family and we ended up having a sort of family breakdown in the end, as a result of which I ended up living with my grandmother and my family moved away again and I ended up being supported financially and emotionally by her. And that was at the time when I started university. So I wouldn't have been able to go. I should be a pensioner, but I didn't have any money. My family had, you know, broken down. Yeah, so that was uh, that was that was pretty tough, but I think I was very very fortunate to benefit from, you know, the arrangements that they had for university entrance in the, in those days in Australia. I studied law and commerce or business, so accounting and economics as well, so double degree, which was Great. I mean, stood me in really good stead for my future career, but it was tough to do two degrees at the same time over five years. And I had all of those typical student jobs, Jim, that you would remember that we had back in those days. Cleaner, (laughs) including quite a bit of time specializing in cleaning toilets. (laughs) Uh, I have to say, I have a bit of a history of that. My parents were the janitor at the local high school for the, certainly for the, probably the six or seven years just after I'd left. And so I do remember a number of the holiday periods stepping in for them and um, giving them a bit of relief time. So cleaning of the bathrooms, yep, that's certainly been part of the resume. I'm not sure I've actually listed that one on the on the resume though, but that, it's certainly there. Yeah, no, exactly. And that was just typically, you know, in those days we didn't have internships or anything like that. I mean, perhaps in the very last year of university or the last couple of years we had opportunities like that, but everything else we had to do these other low-skilled jobs. Yes, I was also an institutional cleaner cleaning the university colleges, so their communal bathrooms was very interesting. But anyway, I think, you know, that wasn't a particularly easy period of my life and things really only started to improve once I got into the workforce and I started to have some financial independence and greater control over my own destiny in, in a way. But the reason that I mentioned these things is not obviously because I'm unique in any way because we all have our struggles at whatever point in our life. But I think it's become very clear to me over the years that having had to overcome challenges in my early life like that and challenges that were quite existential actually gave me a sense of perspective that was very different from my peers at that time and even now probably. And, you know, having had to face and overcome those challenges then and and then some other challenges later. Definitely strengthened, I think, my determination and also my resilience, you know, emotional resilience. And those two things, the determination and the and the resilience have really flowed through, I think, into my career in later life. And particularly I think you know, in dealing with experiences in more challenging environments, you know, cross-cultural environments in particular, such as working in, in the Middle East. I think I really drew on 
those experiences that I'd had in my formative years to help me get through some of the peak challenge moments, shall we say, certain times. And that kind of the strength, the resilience, the different perspective, is the perspective one that, look, I've been through a lot worse than this. This is kind of, and being able to not see, you know, difficult moments as um, harrowing, but in fact, relative to what you'd been through before, more than manageable. Is that the kind of perspective that you're talking about when you say a different perspective than perhaps others? Yeah, I think so. You know, things that other people were worrying about, particularly back in my sort of teenage and and student life years, I just thought were very trivial, really, Uh, not really worth spending time on. And I think also, and then later on in in my life, I mean, obviously, challenging times are always difficult, but I think if you know that you have faced challenges before and you have got through them and that you just have to grit your teeth and just get on with it, that will help you to get through. Of course, you know, resilience also has a flip side because you can, you know, you have to be careful not to overstay if you like, or, you know, stay too long in environments that are not healthy or productive. So you have to know when to make a move. But on the other hand, it's good to be able to just tough it out. It's a, a really interesting question too, and something that I I've thought a lot about in relation to my, you know, my own family, my own kids, which you know brought, have have been raised with a very different environment, and, and if I can, with less struggle. And, and there is so much in struggle that develops your resilience and your what your ethics and you know your work habits and all of that kind of stuff. So I, I think a lot about well, if you actually miss out on that, how does that? We can see what, what it does when it's there and the resilience that develops. What happens when it's actually not there? Because the generation before you perhaps and then, you know, before me with my parents and thinking about the struggles they had I, and then my grandparents, I think about those stories. Those stories still blow my mind when we you know, sit down with my father on a Saturday morning and he goes through about and, – and it's only more recently that I've started really listening <laughs> and really understanding the struggle back then. So anyway, it's something I do think about what happens as that struggle lessens as the generations pass on to go, what, what does that mean? What does that mean for everyone? It's really interesting because you see an equivalent situation to that actually with family businesses with, you know, the founder. Of course, the thir- f- f- that's right. First generation creates it, second consolidates because they've seen the struggles of the first and the third usually blows it all up <laughs> that that that's the theory isn't it it is the theory but i think there's there's some truth in it it's interesting there's a, there's a guy here in dubai actually who who has sort of pivoted his career to actually counseling almost the younger generations of these you know family businesses to try to help them to you know have a, a positive and constructive way of dealing with the the legacy that they are going to inherit and i think there's, there's a great need for that actually I think there's a need not only just kind of a learnings, but I think there's also a real risk if you're born into, let's just say, a successful family. How do you yourself identify with the success that you can attribute to yourself as opposed to someone else? And I think that is a that can be a really difficult question because you know just t- taking pride in what you have done, you have achieved, and so forth. And if if somehow the environment has deprived you of almost the ability to do that or the need to do that, I do think that can be, I know it's first of all problems and all of that, but I do think that can have an impact on one's own kind of self-worth and, again, something else I think about a little bit. Yeah, no, and constantly being compared to others, you know, others in your family. 
you know, you just feel like you're, you know, what about being perceived in my own right, you know, for my own achievements and things. I can definitely um, understand how that can be very difficult for people in that situation. And so, so, so that background that we've talked about, that you know, some of those early struggles. I was going to ask you about, okay, the decision to, you know, you were working in the UK. I think you were working. Firstly, you were a partner at, or I think you you went from a partner at Kemp and Little in the UK, and you decided to move to the Middle East. Which certainly in the early two thousands. Now I made a move later in the two thousands, but in the early that was a pretty rare. Tell me about your thinking, your what was going through your mind at that point, and why say, well, this is an opportunity I'm gonna I'm gonna have a go at. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I've never been a person who's been afraid of a challenge. I actually really enjoy challenging myself, and that was an example of that. I think, as you say, I was a partner in a one of. The, the UK sort of leading digital and media law firms I'd set up their communications regulation practice was all going great. This was the very the early 2000s. So I'd been through the dot-com boom and then the dot-com crash. And I guess I could see the writing on the wall. The future wasn't going to be looking too rosy for the next few years for the telecoms industry in, the, in Europe. And it was pretty clear most of the action in terms of like liberalising and opening up to competition, which was sort of the wave that I'd been riding throughout my career, starting in Australia and then you know in, in the UK as well, where the parallel journeys were happening. But most of the action was going to be happening in the east, and particularly the the Middle East looked particularly interesting because the markets you know had didn't have competition at that stage and were ripe for liberalisation. So I you know started looking at opportunities there. I was approached in the end about a job in Qatar and my husband was approached about a job in Bahrain and so we decided to take the leap. And, of course, as you would know, Jim, yourself, I always say moving countries is a little bit like committing murder. Not that I have committed murder, but what murderers say about committing murder is that the more you do it, the easier it becomes. And that's definitely the same with moving countries, right? So... (laughs) And I'd moved a lot in Australia as well, moved cities and you know at various times in my life. Of course, yeah, you were an old hand at by, by the time you got to uh, got got to the Middle East. Yeah, it sort of wasn't. You know, I thought, oh, okay, yes, let's do this. So that was great. But you know, huh, relocating to Qatar as which is a very and back then definitely a very conservative and not not as well known. We're talking about two thousand three. Two thousand three. It was not known in the way that it is now. I was moving there as a woman alone. And it was only... Oh, so Phil, Phil didn't join you? He was... No, he went to Bahrain. Right, okay. Yeah, which is a nearby country, but it's not the same country. And, you know, you have to fly there, fly between the two countries. And this was... I got to Qatar, uh, it was only a couple of weeks after the end of Gulf War Two, And Gulf War Two had actually been run from Qatar. There was a big US base there. I and mean, I think I was living in the hotel where quite a bit of that war had been conducted from. So anyway, my partners in the law firm just thought I had gone completely insane. <laughs> Why wouldn't they? You, you just packed up and gone to a war zone or just, you know, a, a war zone that had just ended. Just ended, yeah. But I could see the potential. And I mean, I was right about the work because it ended up like it was absolutely world-class work that I was doing. And in an environment Okay, in those days, Qatar was almost a hardship posting, to be honest. I mean, it was very limited infrastructure. The living conditions, not what I was used to at all. So I actually lived in a gated, in a compound. So that's a gated community. It had a nine foot high wall around it with with razor wire on the top. We had huge electronic steel gates at the driveway, you know, where the cars could come in. Before the gates, you had to go through like a chicane in your car and stop at the guard post. And the guards were there and they had like semi-automatic weapons. 
So somehow I took all of this in my stride and I distinctly remember the compound had like two sections and there was a a road between them. So I I used to go in my swimming gear, appropriately modestly attired, but still it was my swimming gear, walk out one gate, wave to the guard, walk across the road, over to the other gate, wave to the guard, go in, have my swim. It was just like looking back now, it was quite, you know, surreal, but it just, you know, went with the flow when you were living there. But it was, you know, so it was was challenging and quite a different environment to what I was used to at the company, at the organization which is Urdu now it was Qatar Telecom back then I think I was one of only three in the whole company who spoke English as their native language and one of and there's nothing wrong with that but just an interesting you know contextual piece of information and one of only three women in the senior management team which was about 100 people there were only three women so it was a different experience quite challenging very challenging actually and I definitely learned that culture shock is a real phenomenon, a physical phenomenon, actually. And you can't predict who it's going to affect or how it's going to affect them or what's going to trigger it off. And it's not usually the things that you expect. I mean, when I arrived, I did think I had made a terrible mistake when I started work. And I spent my first afternoon after work lying on the bed in the hotel and I was just crying. And not just crying, I was like sobbing like a baby. And I'm smiling and laughing now because I had the almost exact experience myself sitting at a desk in a room by myself, having left the family, looking around and saying, what have I done? What have I done? And people don't talk about this, Jim. They don't talk about it. When I started talking about it, then I realised, which was you know, quite a number of years later, then I heard you know, people said to me, I That's, that's what everyone does. Yeah, every, all ladies who come to Qatar spend their first day crying. Well, I had no idea. I thought it was just me. <laughs> but, you know, I do remember deciding, you know, lying there, this thing, it's either going to make me or break me. me. Or break me. And I'm damned if I'm going to let it break me. So I just sort of pulled myself together after I stopped crying and I just got up and I went back to work the next day and actually got progressively better after that. And it sounds like you had exactly the same experience. And that, I tell you what, what I love about that is how at the time you think it's the worst thing that could have ever have happened, the worst decision you've made. And with time, it ends up being the best decision you've ever made. So, I, and I love that. So, whenever I see whether it's family or friends and they're so down because they think it's the worst thing, I've just said, give it time. Give it time because it may end up being the best thing that's ever happened. And certainly for me in my career at that point in time, absolutely. Going from that point of what have I done, how silly have I been, to for me it was seven years later saying that was the that was the highlight of my professional career. That journey in itself, I think, is it makes such an impact for your own personal growth and your belief that you can do anything. And that thing, just let time tell you whether it was a good thing or a bad thing rather than making, a dec- making the assessment at that particular moment. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, for me, it was it was immensely challenging, that whole experience. But what, as you say, what a learning and personal growth experience you know, these fantastic work projects, absolutely world-class work, actually being able to do it in a, in, a, in what turned out to be, despite the razor wire and all those other things, which I did get used to, you know, a, a quite a lovely environment, a five-minute drive to the office with no traffic lights, you know, blah, 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 some great world-class people that I met and interacted with. And I just learnt so much about other cultures, about my own culture, which you come to see in a completely different light. 
Yeah. So I, I want I do want to do a bit of a deeper dive on that because that cultural experience and, and what you actually learn. And uh, I know from a personal perspective, and at least I don't think I really understood culture. Just beyond the culture in the office and the culture perhaps in the family. But actually moving countries and then really experiencing and not just another Anglo culture, a completely different culture, in our case, of course, an Arabic culture. And what and the behaviours all I mean that was just a fascinating experience certainly for me and my family. I'd lo- talk a bit of, talk a bit about that and what you learned I suppose and how you began to see things perhaps differently and um, uh, the influence it had on uh, on you and and the way you dealt with people I suppose. Yeah, no, sure, absolutely. But I mean, Jim, I'm really interested though to you in your comments that you saying that you didn't really understand culture because coming from a, you, you come from a, I know because you come from a multicultural background in Australia in the first place or what we think in Australia is a multicultural background right but it's correct but but in fact and I think it's you're right to point that out and, and there are absolutely of course differences in that you know the, certainly my migrant background my you know, parents were Greek and I and they came to Australia in the early 60s and I was born in the mid 60s and of course that was absolutely a different cultural a cultural mix that I grew up with but it was chalk and cheese going from that, moving the family and going to the Middle East and then really understanding, wow, there are so many more layers and so much more depth in what people refer to as culture. Yeah, no, definitely. And I, mean, I think it's absolutely you know, critical to, to have or to, to develop a cultural understanding of the environment that you're, you're working in. And look, it's it's also interesting though. I mean, I found because I went from Australia. Actually, I, I moved around a lot in Australia. As I said, as an adult, I moved, you know, as well as as a child. Even moving from say Melbourne to Sydney, different cities in Australia, they have different cultures, different certainly different working cultures. Moving, you would think moving from Australia to the UK would be very easy, and that there would be no sort of cultural barriers. But that's not correct. The cultures are quite different, and I had to adjust my behaviour, moderate my behaviour, and then I had to do that. To an even greater degree when I moved to the Middle East from from the UK, and I did a lot educate myself in the early days. Especially, I read quite a few books about doing business in the region, you know, on culture in the region, on people from different countries in the region and the similarities and differences. And I also read a number of books on understanding Islam because it became clear to me that that's really one that understanding you know the religious background is the religious culture is is key to understanding the culture in the region or one of the keys anyway so and, and what I noticed actually over time was that the people who came to the region sort of later than me I felt that they were not making as much as, as didn't quite put in that same effort. They weren't no, well, yes, because the region was becoming more international, internationalized in a way, and 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 maybe appeared on the surface to be very global and everything, and so they didn't realise that they needed to dig into these things. And I felt I saw more cultural or less cultural sensitivity in the, the people who came more recently, and I found that a bit upsetting. But I think I was very fortunate to work in Qatar, and I spent quite a bit of time in Oman as well, working in those countries first before moving to the United Arab Emirates, which is a lot more has always been a lot more sort of internationalised on the surface. But I think in Qatar and Oman you could get a much truer and deeper sense of the culture of the region so that when I moved to the UAE, I... You know, had a better understanding of the cultural nuances, which perhaps to others were hidden because they hadn't lived in these, these other more conservative, perhaps, environments. Not, of course, that I'm implying that I am perfectly culturally sensitive. I'm sure I've made many, many <laughs> errors along the way. I know I have. 
But I think my experiences in Qatar and Oman were definitely uh, very, very helpful. And what advice would you give to others thinking about make, moving countries, essentially, to, for, for work opportunities? What, what advice? Do it, don't do it, think about it. What, what, what do they need to be looking out for? Take every possible opportunity. Where, where are you on the spectrum? I, I can guess, <laughs> but... Well, I think yes, too. But I mean, it's got to, you've got to be guided by your own. I always wanted to go to leave Australia. I always knew I wanted to leave and go overseas. I didn't quite know where. It took me a long time and a lot of determination to make it happen, but I did make it happen in the end. So I always knew that. But, you know, if you don't feel like that, then maybe, you know, you need to be true to yourself because, because what's very clear is it's not working overseas, especially in somewhere that is quite culturally different from your, where, what you're used to. It's not for everybody. doesn't work out for everybody. You know, I've, had people, you know, even quite a few in my own team who just it wasn't for them because if you if you're a person who want who just likes everything to be just so and expects everything to operate in the way that it does in your home country, then probably better to stay in your home country. You will be disappointed and and, and frustrated, you know, unless you're per- you've got to be able to go with the flow when you move to a different culture and accept that you have to deal with the art of the possible. And be effective within the parameters that exist and don't get frustrated when you think that, well, actually, back in my home country, I'd be able to do this, this and this. Well, you know, you're not in your home country, so you have to deal with what's possible. There's a couple other things that you're, you're doing at the moment, Annalise, I'd love to talk about. One is that you've got a role as an investment committee member in a group called Dubai Angel Investors. Tell us a bit about that, how you got your interest developed there and, and, what, and what you're actually doing there. Yeah, sure. So, so I'm actually one of the founding investors and a member of the investment committee of Dubai Angel Investors, which is actually the Middle East and North Africa's leading sort of micro venture capital firm now in the in the tech space. So it focuses on seed and Series A investment in early stage tech ventures with high growth potential. They can be based anywhere in the world, but you know, preferably if they have some kind of Middle East touch points, that's desirable. Yeah. So, I mean, this probably all resonates with you. This is the world you now. Uh, occupy yes <laughs> yep uh, how did you start off and and what are you seeing at the moment well how I, it all came about because of it like a chance encounter so i went i'll give a bit of a shameless plug to a, an organization there's an organization here in dubai called emir emerging markets intelligence and research which is run by a fellow called trevor mcfarlane and basically it's a bit of a think tank where they share for business leaders they share information about business trends and, and economic trends in the region with my job as a lawyer, I'm not really eligible to belong to this group, but I managed, I was given the opportunity to go along to one meeting. So I've been to one meeting and it was just such an excellent event for networking. And I had a couple of really good things came out of it through chance encounters there. One of which was that I met one of the people who went on to become a fellow founder of or founding investor of the of, um, Buy Angel Investors. And he mentioned he was doing this thing with my background, having been a veteran myself of you know two successful startups and worked at a number of other early stage organisations throughout my career. I was very, I'm very interested in startups. I've got a lot of hands-on startup experience. Obviously, I work in the tech sector as well, so a strong interest in tech. I've got my you know business background, accounting and economics, and everything else. So just really resonated with me, and I thought, oh, this sounds great. So I, you know, jumped on board and um, became an investor and then subsequently joined the investment committee. So the investment committee screens all of the potential pitches. So we get to see a wide range of proposals from all sorts of interesting people from everywhere around the world. And it's more, more than just there's some legal tech, but presumably it's much more than just legal tech. Is that correct? 
Oh, absolutely. Yes, yes. It's just tech generally. So we, I think there's, there's one or two legal tech ventures, but but the rest of them in sort of head, health tech, ed tech, all sorts of other tech, med tech, all sorts of things. So uh, it's everything and everything and anything. You know, we see a lot of pitches that are, you know, people wanting to become the next Facebook or relating to social media or social influencers and a lot of e-commerce. The pitches that I'm most interested in, although I seem to sometimes be in a minority, are the ones that actually are applying tech to real-world pain points, real-world problems. So, Jim, you know, Dubai Angel Investors, you have, you've never pitched to us and we haven't invested in you, but, you know, when I first heard because, you know, you know, through meeting, chance meeting with you actually at an event, when I first heard what you were doing, I got so excited because your platform actually, Pursuit, is one of these tech platforms that really is responding to a real-world pain point for general counsel and probably for law firms as well. Oh, thank you for saying that. Yeah. And look, it's, it's, so, it's so important. Are you actually solving a problem? Because I always say you might have a great idea, but if you're not solving someone's pain and problem, nobody cares. Nobody, And certainly nobody's going to pay unless you're solving real problems. So I see. So that's what res- is resonating with you. You're looking for where's there a problem and what, you know, and the picture in front of me, is it actually solving a real pain, a, a today pain? And I've been recently been appointed actually to the advisory board of a legal tech early stage organisation, which is called App for Legal, uh, which is part of the DAI portfolio. It's not a competitor of yours, Jim. It's a different platform for practice management solutions. But the reason that what we don't, we don't know we don't mind plugs to other legal tech companies here at all. So don't worry about that, Annalise. <laughs> and so tell me about tell me about that. Well, it's a practice management solution, and and why you know again why um, I was so interested in it and started you know got really quite engaged with them, and then they you know invited me to join their advisory board was because it was resonating with me because of the real world pain points that I was having in my own legal department when I was you know trying to look for legal tech, and I and these guys actually offer a sort of one stop shop solution that is very, very compelling compared to other things that are on the market. So I'm really really, uh, excited to be involved with them. But I think legal tech's got a fantastic future, Jim. Again, I think, hate to say it, but I see that, you know, from my work on Dubai Angel Investors, there is a sort of a a bias or a negativity towards towards legal tech. There's a blind spot with legal tech, I feel. I don't think think that investors recognise sufficiently this size of the potential market they clearly do not understand the pain points that's very obvious and and i'm you know i'm speaking generally i'm not sort of talking about dubai angel investors because i'm involved in some other areas as well relating to legal tech yeah they clearly don't recognize the immense gravity of the pain points or the immense benefits that can be delivered by legal tech so i think there's you know for people who are willing to actually put their money where their mouth is i think there's huge potential scope uh, I think you're right, Hugh, and that's where the opportunity is. There is all that, like many industries, there's lots of pain points. There certainly still are in legal, and look, there has been certainly in the last couple of years an increasing interest and certainly more funds flowing into the sector. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens over the course of the next few years. But I think the pain points are certainly starting to surface, and there's a number of solutions out there or, yeah, solutions looking to solve those pain points. That's going to be interesting. And my experience, Jim, is the best solutions are the ones that have been developed by people like yourself, i.e. people who have actually, 
That's true. Who've worked as a lawyer, who've worked in the industry, in, in, and a, and a, the pain point is something known to them, and they're trying to solve. Because I've, you know, look for example, when I was looking for contract lifecycle management systems, I and I was despairing, and I was saying to my team members who are helping me, have any of these people, these developers, ever actually worked in a legal department? Have they ever actually seen a contract? Oh, it was appalling. I was about to quit my job and go and start something up. It does show, doesn't it? It does show that if you actually haven't had that experience yourself or in the domain, it, it must be very difficult. It must be very difficult to solve a problem without that kind of domain experience. Yeah, absolutely, which is why, you know, I just, I mean, you know, we had this chance encounter, Jim. We'd known each other, obviously, from when you were you know, a partner in a very prestigious, should I say rapacious, that would probably be harsh. We'll call them out, DLA Piper. They're, they're, it's okay. We can mention the name. i still got a lot of friends there. <laughs> and then we just bumped into each other at the lift at, a, at an Association of Corporate Council you know, global event, for, you know, a, a conference and exhibition, and you, you, I was very surprised to see you there. You just started telling me, you know, this amazing pivot that you had done in your career. And That's was, right. Thrown it, all away, thrown it all away and it leaves. <laughs> I was just, I so admired that, and I think it's, you know, it's fantastic, but you're putting your expertise to really good use, and also I'm just delighted by the success that you have achieved, which is thoroughly well-deserved, to be honest. Thank you for saying that. That is very kind of you, and at least very kind of you. Now, talk about legal departments, your own. Talk about some of the priorities you've got in Do's legal department. What are the top two or three priorities that are top of mind for you? Yeah. I mean, look, by far the top two challenges for us this year, number one is people, number two is technology, and the third one, which is overarching all of these, is sort of doing more with less. But if I just talk about the people thing first, I think, you know, yeah, so Dubai, part of the United Arab Emirates, an area uh, with a very high population of expats in the workforce. I think in the in the population of the country, United Arab Emirates as a whole, 83% of the population were born overseas. It's the highest in the world. So it's very clear that for many expats around the world, the COVID has precipitated you know, life-changing decisions about repatriating and returning to their home country. This has affected many businesses around the world and it certainly has impacted our business and it has impacted and continues to impact my team. I have had multiple team members depart relatively close together over the past two years and this can be very destabilising and can have a big impact on continuity and also corporate and institutional memory. So managing this at the moment from a people perspective is the absolute challenge for me. The other one is technology because you know, my department is in the process of implementing two key legal tech platforms this year. One is for us as a department. The other one is actually a corporate-wide solution that I'm the sponsor of. Legal tech holds out great promise to increase efficiency and productivity and to add value through better analytics and more data-driven decision-making. But the actual process of implementation, particularly if you're trying to do it like I am without having a dedicated legal operations function, that process of implementation can be extremely challenging and you can feel like it's sometimes two steps forward and one step back. And then overarching all of those things is the third key challenge, which is trying to deal with all of these types of issues in an environment which is very much, as in all companies, about doing more with less. So resourcing, whether that's people or budget, is the overarching challenge, I think, of all of them. And tell me, what, what about the way to and your legal department manages its law firm relationships? What are the priorities around and the challenges, I suppose, around the way you're managing your relationships with your law firms and probably particularly with, in this more difficult environment with, I assume, the 
what you're facing with your legal team, I expect a number of law firms might be facing with their members of their legal team repatriating back home. Well, I'm, I'm guessing at that. T- tell me about that, though. Uh, what, what are those priorities around the, those relationships? Yeah, I mean, I think the overarching priority is still the same, which is that we have a, we have a panel of law firms, but you know what we need is access to an appropriate range of efficient, effective advisors, I suppose, efficient, effective advice, and and we need the. It's really important for our organisation, in my view, to have advisors who are a good cultural fit with the organisation, and for us, that translates into people who are down to earth. We need a lot of partner-led. We need we need very hands-on involvement from partners because of the nature of our business and our our stakeholders. And we need advice that's practical. And we need also advisors to be uh, very responsive because our internal clients' demands are very very unpredictable. So you know, over the years, it's I think those are the sort of key features that we look for. We you know, budget is obviously an issue for us. Budget has become very very tight. It also is challenging. So, you know, firms need to be sensitive to that. And, yeah, and I, I think I'm not a client of, of uh, Jim's. I'll just say that to everybody. I, I love the Pursuit product, but just because of the nature of our business, we don't do as many big sort of beauty parade type of arrangements. So It's early days yet, though. Early days, yes. <laughs> early days yet. Uh, on part two, when I get you on for part two, will we, you'll, do will be a client of Pursuit, then we can talk about that. <laughs> I would love to be, and I wouldn't rule it out. Any, I would not rule it out because I can see that it can add value, you know, even potentially in the future for someone like us. But yeah, so those are those are the, the priorities. And I think with the panel arrangement, you know, what I've learned over the years, and a number, I think we've had like three or four different iterations of panels over the period that I've been with the company since the startup. And you know, it takes a while actually to develop relationships with your firms, and you you can't underestimate the you know how much you have to put into developing those relationships but if you put in you'll get out and I think you also you know then you have other stakeholders who think that you could that it would be a great idea you know to go off panel for xyz projects but that sort of is this intangible thing the relationship that you've developed with the firms the the corporate knowledge that they have the institutional memory and everything else is really invaluable so it's important to be able to leverage that which means you need to have a good range of firms on your panel to make sure that when different projects come up, you have access to firms who are appropriate for that. Let's move on to what I call my myth buster question. Is there a commonly held belief out there in relation to, let's say, best practice amongst GCs or in-house teams, which you disagree with, which you think is a myth? Yeah, it's, a very, it's an excellent question, Jim. Really, really good question. <laughs> okay, so look, I am very conscious or about ethics, actually, and ethical challenges that GCs and legal departments can face. Now, and I'm saying that, this is, I'm not saying it because of any stereotypes about doing business in the Middle East, actually. I just want to kill that off before that thought is born in people's mind. I have not had to face any ethical challenges as uh, in, in my career in the Middle East. But I have observed high-profile incidents in my home jurisdiction of Australia, for example, where I have seen what can happen to excellent in-house lawyers who lose their objectivity and forget that their overriding duty is to the courts, not to their client. And so that, to me, that plays into, you know, there are these myths and general counsel run around, especially actually in in, Western jurisdictions, I think, you know, run around huffing and puffing about I'm a business person first and all of this sort of stuff, blah, blah, blah. And honestly, I think for your own ethical sake, 
as an in-house lawyer and as a GC, you should stick to your knitting. Stick to your knitting. You are a lawyer, first and foremost. If you want to be a business person, change jobs and be a business person. That would be my views. So really, I think the point you're making there is a number of the GCs who are on this show talk about being a great business partner, okay, and talk about being a business partner. But you're saying if you want to be a business person, you need to be outside. You need to be doing that outside of the GC role because of the duties that duties that you've got both to the organisation as well as you know independently to let's say to the courts of the jurisdiction of the jurisdiction that you're working in. Where people have got tripped up, and there was a very high profile incident that I'm thinking of in, in Australia, which happened to somebody that I happen to know. I think I might be thinking about the same one too. And you know they, that person just over identified with the client, lost their objectivity, and was taking decisions and and and. I don't want to say too much, but you know, losing your objectivity is very, very dangerous. I, and I even see now that I, you know, I serve on the council of the Institute of Directors in the UK, which is the world's oldest corporate governance organisation. This has made me think more about things like lawyers, in-house lawyers, general counsel, who also wear the hat, wear the hat, say, of being company secretary. You know, you can get yourself even to, into a mess there. I, I used to think that it was a great idea for those two roles to be combined. As I've got older and seen more of life, I actually think that it's better for them to be separated, which sounds very conservative, boring and unfashionable, but, you know, I think there's ethical duties, you have to take them seriously. And other professions have come to grips with this, such as the accounting profession. They, they are much better now, I think, on these ethical issues than, than um, anything that I've been exposed to on the legal CPD training side, for example. Annalise, anything that if you'd had your time again, you'd do differently? Well, having just said all of those things, Jim, uh, uh, you know, there was an inflection point in my career where if I'd gone one particular way, I realise now, I probably would have ended up leaving the law and becoming a management consultant. And, you know, so I would have worn the business person hat. Oh, you you don't want to go there, Annalise. I think you've... (laughs) You know, law can become an ability trap. You know, I think, look, I'm a very commercially minded person and so which is why I'm involved with things like Dubai Angel Investors, why I got onto the board of the Association of Corporate Council, why I'm on the Council of the Institute of Directors, because I'm very, very interested in business things. And so I think, you know, that would have been a, an interesting direction to have gone. I haven't given that a shout out, but you are actually the chairman, aren't you? The chairperson of the ACC Global Board of Directors. So I, I should have shouted that out at the beginning. Sort of the outgoing chair, chairman nowadays, but yes, I was was the chair of that. So I mean, that's a sizable. It's one of the top twenty five percent US nonprofits, you know, by revenue. So it's a sizable outfit actually, and it has, as you would know, Jim, because you've been to some of their events. It's got what is it forty five thousand members in eighty five countries. So it's it's a massive organisation which does a, a lot of good, particularly for in house lawyers in uh, jurisdictions such as the Middle East, where there isn't such a developed in house community. Yeah, no, it's a great institution. I'm looking forward to not to not the not too distant future where we can get back together in person at some of those events because they're yeah, they're absolutely cracking events. So so, okay, I've got one more question for you, Annalise. What have you spent too much time worrying about in the past that, uh, on reflection, hasn't been time well spent? Well, despite all my comments about determination, resilience, and everything else back in the beginning, I'm a I am a terrible worrier. You're a warrior. We're all warriors. Don't feel bad about that, Annalise. That one comes through time and time again. Yeah, so I think all of it, all of it was probably a complete waste of time, to be honest. Somebody, a wise person told me when I first started work as an articled clerk way back in the days in one of the you know, big commercial law firms in Australia, they, you know, they said, you know, don't worry about things because, you know, 
almost every mistake, in inverted commas, that you think that you make as a junior lawyer can be fixed. So please just come and tell us if something goes wrong. Despite having been told that, I still, not that I'm, you know, talking about making mistakes, but I still worry about everything and I really wish, for the sake of my own mental health, I really wish that I didn't. <laughs> Annalise Reinhold, it's been fantastic speaking to you. I'd love to catch up again. It's been too long since we spoke last time. So thank you. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thanks, Jim. It's been a pleasure. Fantastic. Bye-bye for now. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more, please subscribe to the show in your favourite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.